This time on Poll Hub, we've been talking a lot about the impacts of COVID on everything from work to school to brain physiology. But this time, we're talking about the mental health of teen girls and some of the impacts COVID has had on that. There is disturbing new data on the topic from the CDC, and an expert on this will join us from the University of Oregon to walk through it. Then, is there anything wrong with helping your brother or sister or child or spouse get a job at the place you work? It's called nepotism in some corners, and we found some results from a new survey pretty surprising. So we're gonna talk about that, and we finish off likely where your day began. Cup of coffee is on the menu for our fun fact, but maybe not the way you think. Stick around. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Paul Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Lee Marigoff. Well, we begin today with the growing mental health crisis among teenage girls in America. According to the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey released just a few weeks ago, nearly 60% of high school girls reported persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. That's a jump from 36% a decade ago and is about double the proportion of high school boys who report the same feelings of despair. The report also found that teenage girls are twice as likely as teenage boys to have seriously considered suicide. To lend insight into these troublesome statistics, we are joined today by Dr. Nicholas Allen. Dr. Allen is a professor and the director of the Center for Digital Mental Health at the University of Oregon. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Allen, the stats that I mentioned barely scratched the surface of the report's findings. If you would, please put this issue into perspective for us. So one of the things that's important to understand is that, is that for a very long time, we've known that uh, adolescence is a really critical period for the onset of these kinds of mental health difficulties. And it's particularly a difficult period, uh, a critical period for, for young girls. So for example, with uh, clinical depression, it's actually quite rare and children prior to the point of puberty, which is often considered to be the beginning of the adolescence period. And we see two things that happen after puberty. First of all, that the rate of uh, serious incidences of depression increase, but also that the, the, the boys and girls start to diverge. And so by the end of the adolescent years, around about 18, roughly twice as many girls will have experienced a serious episode of depression or anxiety than uh, will boys have experienced. Now we do see just to, you know, fill out the whole picture, we do see other kinds of problems being more prominent in boys, uh, particularly substance use would be a strong example there. But with these problems like anxiety and depression, they really do uh, become much more frequent in girls and particularly during this phase of life, that's when it begins. We've talked a lot about uh, on this program and everybody's been talking a lot about the pandemic and impacts that's had on mental health and all kinds of other things, but on mental health, especially around school kids. We had a researcher from Stanford on recently talking about the physiology of the brain mm -hmm. of adolescents changing mm -hmm. uh, because of, uh, it, it, apparently because of what happened to them during uh, the pandemic. One of the things that stood out in this research though is the difference in uh, sexual assault, the growth in uh, the rates of sexual assault as not being a hidden factor, but one maybe that we're not considering as much as we're considering some of these other things. What what role does that play? Uh, and what does it say to you that there's been this, uh, I guess, 20% increase since 2017 in girls reporting they've experienced sexual assault? Well, everything we know about those kinds of experiences would suggest to it that if you increase the exposure to those kinds of experiences, then you are going to see a mental health 
response to that amongst those who are more exposed. And so that means that if we go through a period where we see an increase, an uptick in that kind of uh, ex risk factor exposure, then we're very, we would expect to see an uptick in the, in the responses to that, which typically include problems like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress reactions, and so forth. So it's un, it seems very likely that that change is one thing that's driven this increase that we've seen over the last, uh, well, let's, let's step back a little bit. There's probably been a, a steady increase over the last decade or so in these problems amongst girls, and that has accelerated since 2019, since the beginning of the pandemic. So one factor, it's probably one amongst many, but one factor that probably plays an important role in that is this increased exposure uh, to sexual violence and trauma that, that, that young women have been experiencing during that period. Now, I was going to ask about uh, the pandemic and COVID to get a better sense of just how much that has uh, exacerbated the problem, uh, because obviously this was something we all felt, uh, mm -hmm. but for I know from the college kids, it sort of changed a whole bunch of experiences that they might have otherwise had uh, going abroad, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Give me a sense of just you know what kind of impact uh, COVID had on all on the on this kind of situation. Yeah, so everything we know about the key developmental tasks of adolescence suggests that this is a period of life that is particularly critical for social and emotional learning, right? So this is, this is the fundamental thing that the human person is learning about during that phase of life. They're learning about relationships. They're learning about feelings. They're working at learning about how to manage those, how to deal with more complex types of relationships that start to come in like romantic and sexual relationships. But also uh, another aspect is the relationships become more hierarchical. There's a lot more, every teen movie is about the idea of who's in and who's out, you know, who's the, who's at the top of the pile and who's at the bottom. And that, and that's a very important phenomenon. So my point is that's, that's, they're all normal challenges of adolescence and, and it's, and the brain is ready to learn about those things at that period of life, just like the brain is ready to learn, uh, to read, you know, when you're earlier in life, or maybe even very early in life when it's learning to see. And mm -hmm. so. If you can think about it this way, if you take a period where kids are actually withdrawn from their social context, it's a little bit like, you know, not letting a kid see books at a certain time of, or, or covering up their eyes when their visual system's developing, you know, you're actually interfering with the fundamental developmental process that's occurring during that time. So for that reason, although we all felt the burden of the pandemic and it was considerable, there are reasons to expect that young people are going to have a particular burden because it's such a critical time for them to learn about those relationships. And this is where we also can say, and that's especially true for young girls. And, and does, does the, I guess this generation is more of the social media mode of communication than anybody else or any previous generation during this age, age period, we barely had electricity when I was a teenager. So we were really talking a whole different uh, set of uh, concerns. How does that um, play into the, uh, either the way you can communicate better 
or maybe the isolation of not being in direct contact with people. Yeah. So obviously that's a key component. And, and, but I will say, I think it's very important that we take a nuanced view of what's happening online. So on one hand, imagine the pandemic without social media and without digital communication. I mean, kids would have been completely isolated. And, you know, you, you, you think back to the, some of the big pandemics in the early part of the 20th century, you know, the big flu pandemics and so forth, where, you know, presumably people were really literally cut off from each other. So, so obviously one of the great advantages of digital technology during this period was that it allowed kids to actually stay in touch with their friends. They could pay games online and, you know, enjoy their friendships that way they could keep in touch. So I, I think it's important that we don't take a a completely negative view of, of this technology. It actually probably was, um, a a real lifesaver for many kids. However, we've also got to be aware that there are some, uh, affordances of digital technology that, that are different from, uh, in real life relationships, as, as people say, you know, uh, so for example, the fact that the, um, that the peer group is available almost all the time for interaction, uh, the fact that some of your behavior online is in fact, uh, permanently recorded and hard to get rid of. Um, you know, so that's a difference to, you know, once again, going back to when we were young and stupid, you know, <laughs> if we did something, uh, you know, let's say we got a, had a bit too much to drink at a party or something like that. It might be a story for a couple of days. That's very different if there are photos of that event up on the internet and it's going to have this very powerful reputational damage at the exactly the same time when people are extremely sensitive to reputation and, you know, and to, and to what their peers think of them. So look, so social media is a mixed bag. It can, it can, it can be a, a wonderful tool for connecting and finding your community, especially young people who are isolated, feel socially isolated, perhaps LGBTQ kids and stuff like that. They can often find a community that they can relate to. And that's really important. And sometimes perhaps literally life-saving for them. And yet on the other hand, you can experience, uh, bullying. You can experience, uh, the burden of what people call FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know, feeling like you have to be there all the time or you'll miss out on what's going on. And there's also another subtle, potentially negative effect of social media, which is something that we talk about in uh, in mental health with young people is a phenomenon called co-rumination and co-rumination means that two young people who are experiencing depression or anxiety get together and they, they talk to each other a lot about their experience of depression or anxiety, and that can actually be escalating. Now, the interesting Ooh. thing is that, that that will not be perceived as a negative relationship by the young person. It'll actually be perceived as a, as a positive relationship. This person understands me. They get me, they know what's going on, but mm. in fact, the, the, the effect of having you know, someone who will echo back to you, your most negative, uh, thoughts yeah. is often one that will actually over time result in, in more problems than less. If, if we could for a second, just stay on the topic of sort of coping mechanisms, the societal pressures influence how males and females cope with stress, anxiety 
that perhaps lead to these more serious issues? Yes. So there are differences. And, you know, obviously when we talk about males and females, we're talking about groups where there's enormous variability within the group. So I always feel like I need to make that point, you know, so that we don't start to stereotype males and females, like all males are like this, all females are like that. There's enormous variability, but, 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 but there are also some differences on average. And so you'll tend to see a little bit more of this with a female group and a little bit more of that with a male group. And so when you talk about coping styles, yes, there is a, there is a greater tendency for uh, females to use uh, interpersonal relationships as part of their way of coping. And so when those relationships are either thwarted, they can't engage in them, or when those relationships are ex actually not supportive, then, then, then females will, on average, with lots of variability, tend to uh, feel a greater burden from that. Males, on the other hand, will tend to look for ways of coping that allow them to enhance their um, autonomy uh, and their, their ability to, you know, uh, determine their own behaviours and how they can engage with the world. And they will often tend to try and cope with feelings uh, in a more solitary way. And that's probably one of the reasons that they wind up using substances more to cope with their feelings uh, and therefore are more vulnerable to problems with substance abuse. Well, Dr. Nicholas Allen, we certainly appreciate your expertise today and we hope to hear from you soon. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. So let's turn to a, a recent survey about an entirely different topic. Um, and it's it's one that kind of has, runs an interesting thread through uh, America, especially when it comes to American politics. And, and Lee, you know, we think about the Bushes and the Clintons and Kennedys and kind of dynasties. When that happens, when there's kind of dynasties in, say, your workplace, um, it, it might be called nepotism. And there is a new poll that YouGov did uh, in January uh, asking about nepotism. And the question was, how common do Americans think nepotism is in various fields of work? So the question exactly is, nepotism is the practice of favoring one's relatives or friends when making hiring or other decisions in the workplace. How common do you think nepotism is in the following field of work? And they asked about a bunch of different ones. The uh, very common answer, 53% said very common in politics, 40% said in business, 40% said in acting, Hollywood, uh, and 36% in media. It goes down to uh, sports, 27%, and medicine, 19%. What do you make of this? Uh, this this sense that nepotism is pretty rampant in some areas and not as rampant in others. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I always think of nepotism as a slightly more heinous thing where you know you really give the job to the person who's your cousin. Um, and here it's defined as favoring one. Does that mean that person's qualified and just has kind of like a leg up on the on the position? So I I, I think some of it may have to do with uh, the fact that you know it's people think it's common uh, and uh, you know and politics wins out. And I th think the reason for that is maybe. And I'll, I'll be curious that Mary and, and your reaction, Jay, on this, maybe it's only because politics is very visible. So if we are a Kennedy or a Bush or a, a Clinton or whatever, um, maybe uh, maybe uh, you do better 
uh, and we all know about it, whereas in business and academia and other fields, maybe we just don't see it as much. Uh, it's not as well known. That may be why I now that's that's called in defense of nepotism. Uh, political scientist Lee Marangoff tries to spin away nepotism in politics. <laughs> Lee, I had the same impression as you did. I tend to think of this nepotism rather as far more egregious. And the question arises in terms of politics, how much is it nepotism versus privilege? You know, are more doors open, um, not necessarily that you get the job or that you get elected because of who you know. And also there's a statistic based on um, the survey that Jay mentioned that when it comes to their personal lives, 42% of Americans say they've used a personal contact to connect a family member or friend with a job. Isn't that just networking? Doesn't right. doesn't necessarily That's... mean that they're going to get the job. Right. Right. No, I think nepotism is defined uh, in, in this poll is maybe uh, crosses a lot of boundaries into things like networking, for instance, which is completely uh, legitimate. I, it, what What's interesting to me is that when you when you look at these numbers of how common it is, but then you ask people if they think it's a good or a bad thing, you know, 16 um, percent, uh, uh, just 16 percent of the people in this poll thought it was a bad thing. I guess that gets into the definitions and question wording. Again, the wording of the question was nepotism is the practice of, and then they mm -hmm. read this. So uh, presumably people are answering the question about nepotism. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? But then the definition of it, all of the three of us are like, is that really yeah. nepotism? I don't know. Uh, yeah, in the survey we just did uh, as part of our national survey uh, asking about higher education, uh, about one in four, one in five, somewhere in that neighborhood, said that they thought networking was one of the primary or secondary reasons why they would go to college, uh, just to, you know, meet the movers and shakers and 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 the like. So networking kind of like wins out. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm also thinking back, uh, you know, in the good old days of of machine politics in big cities, where nepotism ran rampant, but it was corruption we're talking people were kind of like getting it on the side and getting a take there um and then of course we had civil service reform which was supposed to be on the merits you took a test and yeah you know, this is all part of the old progressive era reforms um so i i, I guess uh you know, for nepotism, the old definition of corruption uh, and sort of like kicking back 10 percent of your salary uh, to uh, to the guy who got you the job because he's your mother's you know, brother or about make him your uncle, I guess. But, uh, you know, is that all part of, uh, you know, the difference? And if it's corruption, I think people are going to be unhappy with it, although in politics. If you run for politics, you know, you're a Kennedy or, a, you know, a Bush, you know, you it's do a take thing. a hit. Right. Well, but you well, take a hit yeah. on that, too. I mean, you know, it's sort of like a dynasty. You use the word dynasty. So maybe that's a bad thing. Dynasties are Did, bad. Didn't yeah. hurt 43. So No. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that. What do you think dynasty? I mean, a dynasty is something that's strong and it's something to be proud and to, to sort of aspire to. So when you think of it in terms of a dynasty, I mean, maybe it is just the way that it's all couched. I mean, is it all the same thing, but just spun in a different way, like as you said earlier? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, the other piece of this that I found funny when we, we went down the list of how common people think it is, sports was very low on the list. 27% um, mm. said very common. 28% said somewhat common. And it, it just seems like in sports, uh, I don't know what they're thinking about nepotism because 
sports is completely performance driven. No team is keeping somebody on because it's the coach's son or brother or, or daughter or whatever. Not in professional sports. That's not happening. Well, here's here's I'll take issue with that. I'll take issue with that. So uh, if my father plays for the Yankees, I got raised by hanging around ballparks and meeting Yankee players and sort of kind of like got known and stuff. And I, I think there is a networking advantage. I think there's a lot of uh, brothers and children of um, former athletes seem to have those kind of networking contacts. Admittedly, they have to prove it on the on the baseball diamond or on the football field. But I don't think it's a random thing. I mean, if my last name was Manning, I probably would be a hell of a quarterback. But regardless of the field you enter, you might start the day the same way with a cup of coffee. <laughs> and so our fun, fun, how's that for a little bit of a That was really here? good. That was uh, good. You know, yeah, I didn't rehearse it either. Amazing how that came out so well. So in the 19, um, uh, 2021, a uh, question was asked, is most of the coffee you drink brewed at home or do you buy most of the coffee you drink from a shop? Um, and 57% drink their coffee brewed at home, 21% from a shop. And then way back when in 1948, we asked, we didn't ask, none of us, none of us asked that, but it was asked. um, And our friends at Roper have kept records on this, uh, whether uh, the coffee is better uh, served in restaurants or served at home. And here's 65% went with the home, uh, 18%, 16%. My eyes are failing me. 16% said it was a, a, a restaurant, uh, so what do you guys make of all this? Uh, I used to be a heavy coffee drinker, and then six cups a day was a little too much caffeine. <laughs> and so I, uh, I went to, I went off, off the, I kicked the habit. Well, Mary, I thought that the, the surprising thing to me here was the modern survey. Uh, and one of the reasons that we went all the way back to 1949 for a second survey was, is we actually looked <laughs> at, yes. at coffee questions in Roper. And uh, prior to 1970, there's virtually no questions about it. There's a few about the cost of coffee and that, but it's just not a topic of conversation that entered into any polls. But this one from 1948, um, uh, you know, did it ask, you know, whether it was better in a place. I think the surprising thing wasn't then, it's now that it's now. only fewer than six in 10, you know, say uh, that they uh, brew at home, uh, that it is, you know, most often the coffee they drink brewed at home. We just think, I, I mean, I guess, it may be because of living in New York or or in a, in certain settings or whatever, but I just think of everybody going to coffee shop, you know, to Starbucks and places like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and to me, it's in the morning. If I'm having a rough morning, I want a good cup of coffee, and I'm getting a, picking up a cup of coffee on the way home from dropping my kids off at school. The brewed at home doesn't quite cut it for me on those types of days, but you know, maybe it has something to do with the control aspect. At the end of the day, you never really know what you're going to get. You know, not to sound like Forrest Gump, but, you know, maybe they put a little too much <laughs> sugar in it. Maybe they don't put enough, you know, cream or milk or uh-huh. soy or whatever it is. And so there's there's I think there's a control component to it as well. So the other question is uh, then the follow on to this is, OK, you brew it at home. How do you brew it? Do you do a pour over? Do you do French press? Do you have a Keurig? Do you, you know, do you uh, do espresso machines? Do you have a million dollar espresso machine on your counter? I, I I'm guessing that that question probably has been asked. And if we dig around, we could probably find that. What well, what's your answer, Jay? Uh, pour over. Yeah, just a simple pour over. Yeah, grind a coffee. But I grind the whole beans and, and do a pour over. Uh, but not a fancy one. I don't have any, you know, kind of reverse osmosis or whatever. 
whatever these machines are. What do you do? I, I'm a I'm a card person for the most yeah. part. But you know, after you pull out the term osmosis, I mean, where do we go from here in the segment? Uh, I'll tell you. Many years ago, there was a Chinese restaurant in Washington, Mr. K's, and they had this upside down gravity thing, uh, which I just ordered, uh, not because I necessarily like the coffee, but it was just fun to watch it get made. Uh, and I'm, I still don't know quite how they did it, but it was all inverted, let's say. You know. Lee, I thought you were going to say you ordered this upside down coffee machine. I was like, why haven't we seen this? Why haven't you brought this <laughs> to the office? I, you know, when I make a cup of coffee at home, I boil water, I put a spoonful of the, you know, coffee, you know, in it and call it a day. Nothing, nothing fancy. Uh, Nancy's got all kinds of machines. Uh, way, way above my pay grade. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Athen Hollis and Will Promizel. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy, our free online learning portal accessible from our website. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub. And with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll We'll see see you next time. time.